Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 91 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. And actually, uh, this is where I really kind of first heard of this recording that we're going to talk about here. Chris Jones's The Goldberg Variations is just incredible, and Scott was uh, really... Uh, big impetus and giving me a heads up on checking this recording out and, and uh, it's fantastic and there's a good chance if 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 you listeners go to Bandcamp and purchase this album there's a good chance this album could possibly make the billboard classical charts um it, 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 there's a definitely it's not like a, the pop records so if we could move the needle a little bit on this this would be amazing so go over to Bandcamp. I've got the link at mandolinsbeer.com. It's also in the description of this podcast. By the way, if you go to mandolinsbeer.com, you can also, I've started adding a player to the um, website, so you can listen to the podcast right on the page. Also, if you find yourself in Charleston, South Carolina, my gig schedule is ramped right back up. And um, you can catch me Saturday, twice on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Wednesdays is a fun one. It's an organ trio where I'm playing electric mandolin. And it has been a blast. Organ, and my buddy Witt plays keys and key bass with his left hand, and drums by my buddy Carl. And it has been a really, really good time. Actually hoping to have some live stream footage of that coming up here soon. Also, I'm going to have some live stream stuff out there on this Sunday via a gig I'm doing at Tobin's Market. I play there every Sunday night. They call it Brobin's Bluegrass because it's just three really good buddies who get together and play all sorts of stuff. It's not really bluegrass. However... The first set that they're going to record or do the live stream of is going to be of my bluegrass trio called New Ghost Town that I play a bunch with in town here. So we're going to do that, and then they are going to live stream the first set of the trio that I do with my buddy Danny uh, and my buddy Wit. And I love that gig, a lot of three-part harmonies, and Danny's voice is incredible. Wit moves from guitar to upright bass. So that's Sunday. Hope you guys can check it out. All right, let's get to the sponsors this week, Siminoff Books. Roger, he's he's one of the authorities on constructing mandolins, and he just put out the fourth edition of the Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual. And I think it speaks volumes when you, oh, no pun intended, by the way, um, when you go to Lynn Dudenbostel's shop, and he's got a copy of it right there along with his others. So go to SiminoffBooks.com and check it out. It's been updated. It's got 330 color photographs. It's fully illustrated, revised text, drawings, for the beginner and the pro. And speaking of from beginner to pro, no matter what level you are, Peghead Nation video streaming courses for mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass are the best you can get. Their lineup is just stellar. Uh, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. They've got high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And check it out. Get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops, and check out their Instagram. Their Instagram is incredible. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. And Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Let's get into the podcast with Chris Jones. 
All right, now it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Chris Jones. Chris, how's it going? Hey, it's it's going pretty well. Great, man. How are you doing? Good, good. Congrats on the new release. It's incredible sounding. I can't imagine. I can't wait to talk about it because I just can't even imagine how you tackle something like this. <laughs> it is pretty impressive. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. What have you been up to here besides the the new release stuff? <laughs> well, I um, since I'm a teacher, my semester just ended, and um, which, by, by the way, this is the last time I ever schedule a, an album release during finals week. <laughs> which, <laughs> not a not 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 very forward thinking on my part, but now that the the album's out there. And I can sort of step away from that. My semester's over, and I can sort of step away from that. I'm I'm just taking a little bit of time to, you know, just breathe. Yeah. Well, you've earned it, man. You've earned. How many um How many courses do you teach? Um, this past semester I taught seven. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow! That's that's wild. How many like how many students in a in a class? Um. Let's see. For my. Uh, for my music theory classes, I have I have between like oh between like five and eight, and then I, I taught one general education class, music appreciation, and I had uh, I think I had twenty seven in that one. So, you know, a, a good good sizes for the subjects. So you know, theory classes are small, but I can I can really work with everybody, and then you know, doesn't uh, doesn't get too overwhelming. Man, <laughs> it's uh, it sounds overwhelming on this end. <laughs> and then add a new, a new album release into all that as well. Holy cow! So before we dig into this new album, um, let's talk a little bit about you. How did you how did you start and find yourself in the mandolin world or the acoustic music world? So my uh, my parents started me on the cello when I was three, and um, they're they're both musicians. And uh, my, my my whole family is pretty much musicians, so uh, I didn't re- I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> it was it was just sort of something that you did, you know. When when you're three years old, you start an instrument. I remember <laughs> I remember they they took me to a room where uh, there was I think like a violin and a viola and a cello, and they were like, just pick one. And I, I think I remember walking over to a cello. So wow, you know, that's you know, a... let, let, letting me choose. That's so cool. And the cello is just such a beautiful sounding instrument. Yeah, it's I still I still play every now and then, but uh I've I've definitely sort of gone in different directions recently. Is that where and your then, a, a, initial love of classical music came in? Yeah. Absolutely. Nice. Are they are I your parents just, classical musicians? They are, yeah. Oh, neat. Yeah. So that was sort of just, you know, our it was you know the, the the musical language of the household, and then um, I want to say when I was maybe like five or so, somebody gave my parents like a homemade mandolin. Oh wow! Yeah, and so I just I would just start, you know, I would just pick it up, and my my ears told me that it was tuned basically the same as a cello, you know, speaking in intervals. So I would just you know try to pick out a couple things, and I would I would come back to that every now and then. And then I think maybe around the age of 12 or so, I made the big pitch. I was like, all right, can I get a, you know, a real mandolin? And I think I, I eventually sold them on it. And then that was that. Was that. 
Nice. What was the uh, what was the mandolin? The the first one I got. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, um, I want to say it was a. I think the brand name was like Hondo or something like that. So definitely, you know, definitely entry entry level. But I, uh, I I played that one for for a while. But that one that one's now retired. It, it was it's been signed by uh, all the members of Nickel Creek, including Mark Schatz and Mark. Uh, so that's that lives at my dad's house now. So in that time between five and and twelve, when you're starting to get you know you want to get a new mandolin, had you started listening to other styles of music aside from classical? Yeah, yeah, and I think it was um, it was really when I was like. I, I don't remember what age I was. It was, but it was whenever uh, "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou" Thou came out. That was. That was what really opened up my ears to all of these different, um, you know, American styles that I hadn't really been uh, introduced to yet. So I would, I, I was using that uh, that homemade mandolin that we've been given, and I was just, I was listening to this this album that I had, and just picking things out note by note, and just you know figuring out every single tune on that record. And when when I started doing it, I was literally writing out the notation for them. And then after a certain point, I, I just thought to myself, wait, I don't need to be doing this with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was that was the album that really that really got me into, you know, seeking out other other music like that. Did you go um, did you go older? I know you mentioned Nickel Creek. Did, did, it, did it take you first to Nickel Creek or did it take you back to older guys like Monroe and different things like that? I think I, I went the direction of the uh, of the Nickel Creek generation first, like Nickel Creek and then Allison Krause and Union Station, and I, I guess they were a little bit before that though. And then then after that, I I just I dived backwards, so I went back to the beginning, and you know Monroe and the, the Bluegrass Boys, and then just sort of. Um, I don't know, just learned what I could. Did you, did you play in front of Chris when you uh, got him to sign that mandolin? No, I didn't. This was, uh, this was a, let's see, it was a show in Tampa, and I think it was maybe 2004 or 2005. And um, so obviously, you know, I, I had my instrument with me, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to so badly. <laughs> the show was done. They all, they all played in the street for it had to have been another two hours this little alley next to the buses. And that was, that, that was sort of the moment where I thought to myself, wow, I want to do this. Yeah. I saw them do the same sort of thing. They did some shows billed as the mutual admiration society. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was them. And then Glenn Phillips from toad, the wet sprocket, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin and Pete Thomas from uh, Elvis Costello. And, um, they played the gig and then they went out and played by the buses for like another 45 minutes, an hour. And I'm like, man, that this is, this is what music, this is like the love of music, you know?
Yeah, I, I love that just because, you know, you're it's not like there's this separation between audience and performer. When when you're in a situation like that, you're you're part of this, you know, participatory musical experience rather than, you know, a, a, a performer audience delineation or demarcation. That's a great example. I think that's why everybody who in this in this genre of music, this comes up a lot when I'm doing these interviews is I think part of the reason why it's so popular among the players and the listeners is because the community is so inclusive. There's like everybody has been able to talk to their heroes or jam with their heroes or have moments like where you get to see there is no line between them and in us. You know what I mean? It's not, it's, it's more of just, it's all us. And I, I just, I find that so amazing about like the bluegrass and the, the acoustic music world. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that, that was something that, that was a, a shock to me coming from the classical world. Oh, sure. You know, when you, when you, go, to, when you go to a symphony hall, you, you, know, you go sit down in your seat. The, you, know, you, you listen to people up on the stage who are so far away, they look like ants. And then when you, 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 know, you clap when everyone else is clapping, and then that's it, you go home. And you you know you never really meet them you never you know there's 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 not that participation element there right were you still pretty deep into classical though as you're going through as you're going through all the um the bluegrass music oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah and not not only that I mean at the at the same time I was I was I was also really getting into you know Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the you know the the 60s and 70s rock scene as well. I eventually got around to, you know, finding the dead. That's, so, oh my gosh, that's amazing. You are real, you're real well-rounded. <laughs> well, at, you know, at the, at the same time, it's like, I, there's so much about each of these areas that I don't know. And I'm, you know, I'm always going back and trying to figure out what I'm missing. Were you still playing cello exclusively with the classical stuff? Or were you then starting to put this into mandolin? Let's see. So I I played, um, I guess you could say cello was my primary instrument through through the end of my my undergrad experience. So until I was like maybe maybe twenty two or so. Oh wow! Yeah, cool. My 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 undergrad degree was in cello performance. So, but by the end of that, I was I was also playing in like a rock band that was all cellos. Oh really? Yeah. Oh my gosh! What was it called? It was called Trio, and we just we we just played a, a lot of local gigs and stuff. But it was it was so much fun. It was you know the fellows, and that was it. And so then, how did you um, determine? So you you play. When did the band Eighteen Strings come into into your world as far as as far as music goes? ago or so and um i had already at that point started playing a lot more mandolin and i started going to a lot of um, a lot of jam sessions you know in the in the town where where i lived then and actually live now again 
there there were a lot of um, just open jams every single um, every single week. You know, Thursday it was here, Wednesday it was here, Mondays it was here. So I would just go to all these different places, and I you know, had to play with all these different people. So um, I was, you know, getting deeper and deeper into the mandolin thing, like more than I'd ever done before. And um, we went out to we went out to dinner one night at a at a great little burrito place, and um, there was a guy playing, uh, you know, just like solo solo acoustic guitar and singing there, and. Um, I, you know, I, I was I was really enjoying it, and I I went up to him afterwards because you know we we had seen each other, you know, I guess you know being in tangential circles in in the music scene there, and I was like, hey, we should jam sometime. So you know that I think that weekend or something we we got together and started playing through some songs, and I was like, you know, we should we should get a bass player. So I called up a, a buddy of mine who plays who plays bass, and he got together with us next week, I think, and that was pretty much it. I think we had our first gig booked within like a week after that. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I love it. So what's, what does learning music as a classical musician and sitting down and let's say working on a classical piece compared to say working on a Bill Monroe piece that you want to learn? What's, is, is it the same sort of process? Is it a completely different process? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think ultimately ultimately it's the same process I think at least at least for me it's it's all about connecting um, connecting the sound that I have in my head to you know the the feeling the physical feeling of the way that my my hands and body move and connecting all that to the you know the potential in the ether if you want to call it that I guess the, the the real difference would just be you know if you're if you're playing something that's it, that's primary medium is notation, you're just you know, you're starting from a little bit different of a place. Whereas if I'm learning a Monroe tune, I'm just going to be you know I, I'm listening to recordings, and but you know it's it's still it's still activating that same that same analytical process in my head. What are some of the things you think that maybe coming from a classical background helped you in the in the mandolin world or, or in the bluegrass world that, you know, people who don't have that sort of background might not realize, you know, can work to the advantage? You know, because when I think of when I think of like classical practice and again, this is this is 100 percent just broad range stereotyping. But, you know, what I mean, you see the movies of the kids, you know, they're they got the bows and just. Just, they're just staring for hours at the music stand of sheet music. You know what I mean? And again, completely stereotypical of a movie. But you know, like bluegrass. You know, for me, I definitely it is, it is when I'm working on tunes. I don't I don't look that intense. <laughs> I mean, it's still working hard on them. But you know, it's not like you see in the movies. Um, it for a sense. So I just wondered if that's you know, is there any any sort of thing like that for you when you were doing the practicing? You know, I think. Now, well, now that, now that I'm really thinking about it, I don't know if I really separate out the practice process between different genres. Oh, cool. You know, every, everything is everything is always, you know, with a metronome and, you know, methodical and slowly. And I think, 
maybe if I if I really took one thing from my, my origins in the classical world, it would just be a you know a, a methodical and maybe overly analytical approach to everything, where it can be maybe this isn't a, maybe this is more of a disadvantage than an advantage, but <laughs> I, I tend to. Um, you know, overthink. And at some point I just have to tell myself, especially if I'm playing something that's, you know, bluegrass or, you know, learning a bunch of songs for something, I just have to think, all right, just stop thinking and play. (laughs) You know, I have to, I have to just let my, let my ear do its work without my brain getting in the way. Sure. But um, I guess the, Maybe it's not so much a function of being from the classical world, but maybe just from doing so many different genres, I can sort of mentally categorize different different tunes and different pieces based on sort of their their core elements. So I can I can find connections between them that way, and you know, uh, economize on my uh, on my mental expenditure like that. Does that does that make any sense? Yeah, man, absolutely, absolutely. Now, do you do you have a a preference? This is always like a, on the Mandolin Cafe. I love it. Uh, so, well, I, well, standard notation to tablature. Do you have a uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, I think I think they both have their place. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. I think whatever whatever's going to help you play. Well, if you're going to enjoy playing and you don't have a background in sight reading and you have a very limited time and just want to play and have fun, like, mm-hmm. whatever you need to do, man. Absolutely. And I think, I know if I'm, if I'm learning, if I'm learning like Scruggs tunes on the banjo, I, I I'm going to probably need tablature for that. <laughs> sure. So, you know, but if I'm, if I'm learning, if I'm learning something on the mandolin and, and it, it's all in tablature, I'll, I'll probably go and find a, um, so, you know, something in standard notation or just do it by ear because I think that, um, it, and it's probably more of me knowing the, the mandolin fretboard better than a banjo. But with tablature, it's, it, it sort of, it locks you into where you play it on the neck. So with, with notation, there's a little bit more element of problem solving. You know, do I, you know, do I play it in, in an open position or do I go, you know, up to what would be, I don't know, maybe like fourth or fifth position if you were going to equate it to like a violin. That and uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm faster with uh, notation than I am um, tablature. But I think that that's just entirely a personal preference thing. Mm-hmm. You know, tabs, I mean, I started out on tabs and if it wasn't for tablature, I, I probably would have just gave up. <laughs> yeah. like some people, some people want to look at, at tablature and you know and see it as less than or you know illegitimate or something but i've seen i've seen loot tablature from the 1400s 1500s in museums before so it's it's been around just as long as notation and it's you know it, it has its place just as notation does wow that's i'm glad i asked this question man that's great i say whatever whatever it takes to bring someone to the conclusion that they want you know, as long as it's not something that's 
you know, physically injurious or right, something. Right, right, absolutely. The, you know, the, these fiddle tunes, traditionally, they're not written down. They're not supposed to be written down. That's a, that's a, a recent recent development where, you know, some of these fiddle tunes go back to, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say something wrong, but I, I, some of them, I believe, go back to, you know, 17th century England, where, you know, they, they wouldn't have been written down. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, too, a lot of old-time songs, like I probably, I mean, there are a few songs like Boatman. Uh, that's one for, it's, I don't think I've heard anybody ever play it the same way at a jam. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just like whoever kicks it off has a version of it that they do. And I think that's really cool. It always reminds me of like what a rich oral history that that this style of music has, and it just kind of makes it a little bit more special to think like, wow, somewhere along the line, somebody played that for someone and somebody else. You know, it's just I think it's great. Yeah. yeah. And you usually pick something up new too. Like you know, it's how you get these cool variations. And you know, I'm pretty sure. Uh, cuckoo's nest that's on the first nickel creek album was not <laughs> that's not the original version that that was ever played of cuckoo's nest <laughs> for sure well let's man let's talk about this new album because this it, it seems like a massive undertaking for a band to do <laughs> <laughs> you did this yourself it's the goldberg variations it's it just it's incredible i i finally got a chance to sit down and like listen to it and i'm i mean just the sounds the sound quality is great the everything about it is amazing so i'd love first for if if they're not classical players here i'd love you maybe to give a brief description of the goldberg variations and then um and then let's talk about how you decided to do this sure so the the Goldberg Variations are a, um, a a series of variations on an aria written by Johann Sebastian Bach in the uh, in the 1740s. I think I'm going to fact check myself on that. <laughs> Basically, it's um, it's about an hour and 15 minutes of music, and everything is based on. The, the first tune in the whole thing, the, the, the aria. This this aria, and 
everything that comes after it is a a variation on that aria, or it's it's actually a uh, a variation on the bass line from the aria. So um, you, you you know we can think of that as sort of like you know when, when we play when we play a tune, we will improvise over a set of chord changes, and basically every single variation is sort of like um, a, a new a new piece that's derived through sort of this like improvisational approach over these chords. And that way it's sort of, it's sort of like one long um, chacon or passacaglia. So A, you, you decide to do it on traditional. I think the most, would the most famous ones be the Glenn Gold versions of it? I think so, yeah. Which yeah, are done on piano. Right. <laughs> You, however, decided to do it on traditional instruments, all yourself. I think it's this is, blows my mind. <laughs> so, how long ago did this idea come up for you? Um, well, this is this is one of those pieces that I sort of grew up with, and then um, when I when I got more into the the traditional music scene. And I was getting into like you know the music of Chris Beely. I I found one of the um, one of these variations on a record he did with Mike Marshall. It was the first variation, and I think it was on Into the Cauldron. So that sort of planted the seed in my mind that was like, I, I really want to be able to listen to the entire thing in, you know, in a setting like this. And I, I never really, I never really, I never anticipated me being the one to do that. But over, you know, when, when everything shut down last year, I had all this time on my hands and I, I made a video of the, the ninth variation and I, I just looked around at what I had. And I, you know, I had a, a guitar here, I had my mandolin here, I had, um, I had my banjo here, and I was like, all right, you know, these, let's see how these all work together. So I made this split screen video of the ninth variation, and I really liked the sound. How you know, just all the everything just came together. They're they're all similar enough in timbre that it was, you know, it. It was cohesive. It was timbrely cohesive, but then they were different enough that I could, I could hear the different voices in there. You know, I could hear all of the the, the nuances in the the counterpoint, and there were there were things that I'd heard in there that I I had never noticed before. So after that, I I did a another split screen video of the second variation, and each one of these took me like I don't know maybe a few hours to put together. So after that one, I was like, you know, I might as well do the whole thing. <laughs> and I, I, I think I would be lying if I said there was any more thought process to it than that. How many? And for those of those for those who aren't familiar, how many variations are there? There are thirty variations. 
<laughs> that is just so wild, man. <laughs> and so when I when I decided to do that, I um, I, I've got a I've got a good friend of mine who who runs a recording studio, and who lives like thirty seconds away from me. So I was thinking about it, and I, I you know, I, I thought if I'm going to do this, I might as well do this right. You know, I don't, I don't want to just be recording this on my phone. Sure. So I, I called them up, booked some studio time, and then a couple weeks later went in with like five variations ready to go, and then I went back once or twice a week for about two months. That's not as much time as I would have thought, to be honest with you. I mean, that's a lot of time. But if you would have told me oh, about 12, 13 months, I'd have been like, even then, I'm like, that doesn't seem like enough time. <laughs> it's just such a massive undertaking. And again, you're playing it all yourself. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's still easier than playing it on a keyboard instrument. <laughs> Which I've, I've, learned the, I've learned the aria and I've learned the first variation on the piano. And it, it, uh, I'm not a pianist. Yeah, that's a whole nother whole nother set of muscle memory that I just can't, uh, I cannot figure. I mean, I guess if anybody had enough time to sit down, you've got the theory in there, but trying to figure out all that technique. Right. For me, it's a matter of, you know, one hand that's doing literally two melodic lines. I can do it, but it doesn't sound great. And (laughs) it's, if I think about it too hard, everything sort of comes apart. Did you do it? Did you, did you do it in the order you know, the aria and then one through 30, or did you mix it up? I'm pretty sure I went in order of easiest to hardest. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so what did you start with and what did you end with? See, I think, I think I started with variations one through six with the exception of five, which I needed a little bit more practice time on. especially in the banjo part. That was the bane of my existence for about a month. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I guess I I sort of did like, you know, one through six and then like six through 12. And then it was complete scattershot from there to the end. What was the, what was the last one? The last one I recorded. Okay. So this, you know, there, there are 30 variations with the aria at the beginning. At the end, there's a, an aria da capo, which basically means you hear the aria again, but without the, uh, without the repeats. I saved, I saved that one for the end, specifically so I would have gone through the entire experience myself bef- before doing this thing that's supposed to be like, a, you know, like a, a retrospective on everything that the audience has just gone through.
then other than that, let's see what we this is this is an old an old edition that's literally taped together <laughs> in, uh, a, a box of hand-me-down music. I saved twenty-nine and twenty-three and twenty for the for the last few that I did because those were the ones that I knew were gonna be the hardest ones to do. playing like triplet offbeats to a click or um you know just for the, the actual speed of them it would take me a couple months to to work them all up but yeah basically the order in which i recorded them was in order of easiest to hardest which was one me taking more practice time to learn them and two just putting it off as long as i could <laughs> Now you mentioned before we started recording that there were times where you were you were spending eight, ten, twelve hours a day practicing. Yeah. So what did that look like? Was it like a uh, regimented practice, or was it just kind of like I need to work on this today, this today, and this today, and I'll just start here? Um. Sometimes I would go into it with a plan, and then other times I would just go into it with was thinking, okay, this, you know, this, this particular passage and this one didn't, didn't work too, too well the other day. So I probably need to, to slow that way down and, and figure out and, you know, troubleshoot and diagnose what's going on. So it wasn't always really, really regimented, but it wasn't like, you know, just, I wasn't mindlessly playing through these for hours a day. <laughs> it was it was all very, very intentional practice. And um, I guess mindful is the, I, I think that's what I would call it. And with lots of breaks as well. Oh, I bet. You know, to, to keep from complete uh, musical overload. <laughs> what was the mandolin that you used on the recording? The mandolin that I used on the recording is a, it's a Gibson F9. Oh, okay, yeah. And I want to say it's like a 2002. Nice, sounds great. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's not just the mandolin. I mean, obviously, it, just hearing you talk about cello and thinking and how do you get sounds and tones, it went into a lot of playing to get to that point. But, you know, there's some great recordings out there that don't always have great mandolin tones. <laughs> so... That's that's one of my that's one of the things that I've I think I've put the most work in in uh, overall over the past however however long I've been playing mandolin is getting getting the tone that I hear in my head to 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 exist uh, outside of my head. Yeah, what how do you approach that? I know that's 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 a twenty hour question, but you know, if you're to sit down and be like, I just want to work on a little bit on tone. What's kind of the where you start? Um. In terms of just getting a tone itself, it's 
if I'm going to sit down and work on that, I'm probably just going to be playing open strings and making sure that everything in my body is as loose as it can be without, you know, without me falling over, (laughs) without, without dropping the pick also. Sure. You know, just making sure that every, you know, on my, on my right hand, thinking about every single joint from the, the fingertip through the, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know what these joints are called, but through the, you know, the finger joints, then where the joints of the fingers connect to the the hand and then the wrist, you know, all of those little joints in the wrist and then the elbow and then the, the shoulder and then even the neck a little bit, just making sure everything is as loose as I can possibly stand it to be. Nice. And, you know, any, it's at least been in my experience that any tension in my right arm is going to come through in the sound as being this sort of like, constrained and not as resonant and not as not as pleasant to my ear Mm -hmm. yeah i was just gonna say as pretty there's something about that just trying to play that's what i always try to think of as like try to play beautifully like when i'm always you know i'm trying to to loosen up because i just don't feel like if you I i don't think you can play beautifully if you're super tense uh, maybe I mean you probably can, but I don't feel like I can. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm I'm right there. But that also seems to help me with trying to coax a tone out, you know, because mm-hmm. you automatically then start to slow down. And you know, if you keep practicing like that, even when you speed up, that's gonna still stay there if you're cognizant of the fact that you're trying to play pretty. Right. Right. And that was there. There were times when I um, when I was going over tracks, you know, sitting in the sitting in a control room, listening to things, and I could I, I could just hear that I was tense during a specific take, and I would I, I would just have to say, hey, we we got to go back and redo this part. Sure. You know, it just it just sounds tense. Again, I just I, I, when when people listen to this recording, the fact that it's I mean, you probably not even think it's one person. You you will because I keep talking about it, but. I mean, it, it doesn't, it sounds like, you know, multiple musicians uh, doing this instrument. I mean that in the greatest compliment ever, because you're not thinking about just you. You're like, wow, it's, you're admiring the music and the beauty of it. And then when you think back and be like, this is one guy. <laughs> you well, know? When, I, when I was doing that, I, I, and I would, I would switch back and forth between these instruments. They were, you know, in the studio, the, uh, the recording room is just in this basement and I had just, you know, in the cases on the floor all around me, all three instruments. So I would finish with one take. I'd have to put one down and then I'd pick another up. And mentally I was just like, okay, I have to stop thinking like a mandolinist and start thinking like a banjo player. Yeah. Wow. Just, just going back and forth between that, making sure that I, you know, as much as I could, I wouldn't approach one instrument like it was another. Sure. Boy. How many hours do you think you spent just tuning? <laughs> uh, maybe. So my the sessions that I would do were typically like four or five hours long. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe like forty five minutes out of each one of those sessions was just either either meant tuning or checking that they were in tune. And you know, it's it's not like it was just you know, all right, everybody stop. The mandolin player has to tune. It was like you know, okay, well. The, the person in the control room can be doing other stuff while, um, you know, while I'm checking everything. But no, it was, it was definitely a lot of tuning. 
Yeah, it's it's tricky because I mean that there's it it opens up a whole can of worms about like temperament because one thing one thing that I've that I've had to fight against is you know being being born on the cello, my my ears hear just temperament as being in tune. Whereas you know if I were to tune a mandolin, if if I were to tune the fifths of a mandolin in the same temperament that I would tune a cello. Those open strings are going to sound great, but once anything's fretted, it's all going to be out of tune because, you know, the frets are meant to be, I'm pretty sure they're meant to be in equal temperament. But I, there there was one point during one of the sessions where I was tuning and um, Tommy, the, the guy I was working with, uh, he, he was just waiting, ready to go. And I said, hey, Tommy, how much money do you think I've spent just tuning so far? <laughs> <laughs> I th- I th- he didn't answer me. I think his answer was something just like, I don't know, just don't think about it. Yeah. But yeah, and I can imagine, too, because some of those songs are so, like, um, some of the open space in them, too. And if you just get those two strings that aren't, you're just going to get that weird warble. And it would, I would imagine it would haunt you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there there's spots in, in the album where I can hear things like that. Oh, no Still. kidding. Yeah. Well, if and, it makes uh, you feel any better, I don't notice it at all. And, and um. You know, stuff like that would tend to drive me crazy. So I think you're you're you might be being your own worst critic on that because it's. Uh... Well, I you know when I when I was doing when I was sending this out to friends and asking for opinions, I would I would say here you know at this at this time marker in this instrument you hear do you hear that sound do you hear that that harmonic interference and I you know nobody nobody could but I so I think. It's, <laughs> Either I'm hearing things that aren't there, or it's just you know I was I was in this you know mental headspace for so long with these pieces that you know I now I'm going to hear those forever, even though they're pro- they might not be immediately perceptible to anybody else hearing it. Sure. Well, you know, and I talk to people on this podcast all the time. I just talked to um, Alex Hargraves last week, and he said he can't even listen to his first album that he did because of the playing. Which is crazy because then immediately I'm like, well, I gotta go just listen to the album again with you know, <laughs> hearing that, and I'm like, yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> I can't. Uh, I would be uh, so happy to play like that. <laughs> you know, it's amazing sounding, but you know, you be once you've really immersed yourself in anything, you know, you're, you become your own worst critic and like, oh, I could have done this better. That's you know, but yeah, I'll tell you what, man, uh, I, I the albums, it's it's incredible. I mean, and it's just. It's yeah, and just the sound quality got me right off the bat. And um, yeah, kudos to you, congratulations. I mean, that's that's quite the undertaking, man. So I would imagine you must you must have a pretty pretty great self of a comp- feeling of accomplishment feeling right now. Well, thanks. Right right now, I'm just sort of thinking, well, what what, what do I do now? I was just going to ask so my next question. Do you have another um, another? Th- giant project planned to work on or at this point are you just like okay i just want to enjoy playing music again (laughs) working my head off at it i i do i do have another it's it's not as long Mm -hmm. and i i don't want to say what it is because i don't want to jinx it sure sure but it's not quite as long and um i'm gonna it's gonna be for you know mandolin banjo guitar and cello oh wow is it also classically based? Cool. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't want you to jinx it either, but I would love to, uh, uh, when you, 
I would love to be updated as you're working on it because I'm definitely interested to see what it'll be. Yeah, sure. I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to send you tracks as I do this. Oh, that'd be great. I would love to hear them. It's always great to, you know, get a set of ears on it. What kind of, what, what pick did you use just out of curiosity? Well, let me see. I think it's around here somewhere. Let's see for on the mandolin for, for this project, I used a blue chip, uh, SR 60. Oh, okay, cool. So really, you know, really rounded. And then I've actually, I've, I've switched my, you know, my, my everyday driver since then to the CT-55. Just for, I found that it has a, I can get a little bit more accuracy out of it. And then for, uh, on the guitar, I used, it's right here. I used the, uh, the blue chip TB-45. And then on banjo, let's see, the thumb pick was the, I think it was the JD Crow signature model or the thumb pick. So, you know, the same material as the, the blue chips. So let's, um, I, I've got a couple more questions for you. One of the, one of the ones that I always ask every episode is, um, and we've talked a little bit about this, is if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something, um, what would you recommend somebody working on? And, and I ask that in, in the thought of people who, again, like talking about like people who have jobs that work, you know, 60 to 70 hours a week and they just want to get better at mandolin and they have such a little bit of time to, to, to spend on it, you know, what's something that might, might help them if they were just sitting down for a small window of practice every single day? I would say to make sure that, um, that they're working towards something, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like working towards a gig or working towards a performer or a performance, but, you know, just have something that you're working on and, and do it mindfully. Because ten minutes of mindful practice really is worth like an hour of mindless uh, noodling around. That's my whole thought behind it. Do you have a favorite? Uh, do you have a favorite fiddle tune that you like to play on mandolin currently? I was playing a little bit of um, what's it called? That, that's my problem. I know I know a lot of them, but I, I don't know what they're called. I'm the same way. I'm the same way people like even at jams, they'll be like, Hey, you want to play? I'm like, yeah, just, can you, can you play me the, the A section real quick or just, to, and usually by a few notes, I'm like, okay, yeah, I got it. But there's just so many rattling around in there. <laughs> then, then help me out here. Which was, which one is this one? Yeah. Old danger field. Yeah. I've, I've been playing that one a little bit recently. Yeah. I love that tune. Yeah, I, I I love the juxtaposition between like the the A blues and then the straight up A major. Oh, love it! And I love it. It's like the, this makes the theory nerd in me just go go crazy because you know the A section is all in that that A minor sort of pentatonic, like modal kind of thing. Mm -hmm. B section is all major, and then the C section actually reconciles the differences between those two by. Um, by incorporating both of them at the same time. And then the, the final question is, is a beer question. And, and do you have a favorite beer? Oh, that is a great question. So right now, okay. So one of the, one of the things that I really, really love about living in West Virginia is that it has an amazing local beer culture. Like every, every little town has its own brewery and if the population of that town is over a thousand, there are probably two breweries there. 
So right now, one of my favorite beers is by um, it's by Short Story Brewing in Reedsville, West Virginia. It's called a Present from the Future IPA. Nice. I'll look and see when I go to my local my local uh, beer superstore if it's one that they uh, possibly carry by some off chance. I don't. I don't. I don't know how far they ship out. Sure. This is one of those like it's it's about ten minutes down the road from me. And uh, my wife works in that town where it is, so sometimes she'll just text me after she's done with work and say, hey, you want me to stop by Short Story on my way home? <laughs> yes. <But. laughs> well, you, and now you also said you were doing some brewing. You, you did some home brewing here during, during the pandemic of 2020. Yeah. What was your favorite beer to brew? Um, it's probably a, a toss-up between... Um, a Bavarian Hefeweizen mm-hmm. and a, um, a a pumpkin ale that I made last fall. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I actually used, like, I, I couldn't find actual pumpkin yet because I wanted to make it in time for Halloween. So <laughs> I, used, I think I used butternut squash, but and it was still just as good. What's a time frame process? You were saying it's like a, you start it, and then how long you wait? A, was it a month, a few months? Let's see. I um, most of them, I'll I'll let them I'll let them be in their their primary fermenting vessel. And if there are any home brewers out there who are who are listening and who are you know staunchly pro secondary fermentation, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't have the equipment to do the you know closed transfers to to keep from um, oxidizing it. So I just let it sit in primary for like six weeks. And then, um, and then bottle it. And then normally after that, it's it's carbonated enough after like a week and a half, and then fully good to go within like two or three weeks. Yeah, it's another super rewarding thing, I'm sure. Drinking that beer after you finish it had to be like oh, listening yeah. to this album once it was all done. <laughs> my, I was also making a lot of bread last summer, so I I, I refer to it as my summer of. Uh, bread, bock, and beer. <laughs> well, man, I don't think we could end it on any better on any better saying than that right there. Bread, bock, and beer. Chris, congrats, congratulations on the release. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for taking the time today, man. And I, I'm looking forward to the future and hopefully uh, I'm going to try to get up that way here sometime this summer and fall so maybe I can actually see in person we can have a beer together. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me on here. I um, this is this has been really fun. Awesome, same here. All right, thanks so much to Chris for doing the podcast. Really appreciate it. Go out to Bandcamp today and purchase that album. Let's have him hit the uh, Billboard Top Ten chart for classical albums. That would be incredible, and I think we could totally make that happen. So let's show him some love. Cheers, everybody. Have yourselves a fantastic week. Thank you.